and welcome to Renfield's Cast, a podcast where Ollie and I talk about random shit that we've been reading and then realize we've just been reading a whole bunch of shit by the same guy. That man is Paolo Greco. How you doing, Paolo? Hey, everybody. I'm honored to be here, guys. Thank you. So here's what we know about you. We know that you've got a web store, Lost Pages. Yeah. You've got the Chthonic Codex. You've got Bergs and Bayliss, and you really like goats. Is that fairly accurate? <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> I, I don't really like, like, it's it's mostly accurate. I don't really like goats as such, but I like that goats are grotesque. They are some of these weird things that have been around humanity since the very beginning, because, like, with no goats, we would have had probably, like, no civilization. We surely would have had no parchment. And we would have had no like a bunch of animal proteins, and goats eat everything. So, sure. uh, if you were a guy in the Levant like twelve thousand years ago, you would have had a goat, and you would have brought the goats up the mountains. They would have they would have eaten like mountain grass, and you would have had like milk and flesh and scrolls, and that's awesome. And with the goat thing, how much of it is a satanic thing, and how much of it is a <laughs> Ursula K. Le Guin? thing okay it's not satanic at all but actually my first fantasy book was the wizard of earth sea and it was in my middle school books in italy there was a translation of the first chapter where he uh gad jad i don't know how it's pronounced in english as like sings the distich to the goats that he heard from the village witch and that's still stuck in my mind 25 years after. I love it when it comes down to a seminal text. I think that happens to a lot of people. There's a point of obsession that it all sort of blossoms out of, which is great. <laughs> and I, I remember nothing about the third book, but the first two are great. The first one is the, the shadow chasing him all over the waves, right? And then the second is him down in the dungeon. Well, it's more like the, the girl down in the dungeon, like navigating the dungeon in the darkness. Uh, that really... I was like, wow, this is amazing. That's got to be the birthplace of the Chthonic Codex, yeah, right? Yeah, pro- I, I never really thought about it as such, but probably, yeah, probably like most of the way I do fantasy. For example, like in my fantasy campaigns, they're never about a forgotten, ruined past. They're always about how society is doing, like how things in the world, like in the fantasy world, are in flux. So there is almost never a forgotten past that we have to recover. And it's always about like uh, being in a swing of thing. That's weird. D&D <laughs> loves it, a good forgotten past. Yeah, like, for example, the Ketonic Codex, everything is in the flow. Like, magic is in the upswing. There is like a great amount of things that are being researched. Ah, so it's new stuff for the listeners and the theoretical participants of this podcast who have done no research. Could you explain a little bit about the Ketonic Codex? Okay, basically, Chthonic Codex started as a presentation experiment. I wanted to make a book that introduces a setting for game mechanics and art in the way Magic does it. Magic the Gathering has a bunch of cards with fluff. And I was like, oh, I could actually like make a book. Because at, the, at that point, I was also starting to bind books. I could make a book with a full-page illustration on, on, on a side, on the other side, a bit of fluff and mechanics. Right, so it's a series of plot hooks and, and stuff like that. Part of it is, like, the parts of fluff are as varied as uh, bits of history or yeah, yeah. 
two uh, drunken students <laughs> yep. toying with the idea of stitching a, a hand like to a chicken with broken legs, or procedures on how to feed manabats. That became the first book of the Clonic Codex because I realized I couldn't really make a concertina book that was 80 pages long in <laughs> any reasonable amount of time and up to standards. Uh, therefore, I made three booklets. The three booklets are very different in presentations as well. Uh, the first one is like this. The second one is uh, mostly spells and explains the schools and explain, basically it's a player's option or a player's handbook. And the third one is just a bunch of word building. Wow, so you're up to volume three of the Chthonic Codex at this point. Uh, yeah, well, it started nice. as a three-volume ordeal. I'm working on volume four, which is purely how to use this book. It's like, oh, well, this is how I run it. So, for example, at the beginning of the campaign, there are some laws of magic that you should roll up on a table and other things and you should generate the underworld and you should generate a bunch of things. So did this all come out of running a game and started house ruling things or did you build a system from scratch? The core magic system of Tony Codex comes from Adventure Fantasy game, which is my first published RPG. So I lifted the magic rules from there and started to build this setting that is mostly inspired by Orthodox Christianity and Greek, ancient Greek-like uh, mysteric religions, Levantine stuff. There is a bit of like, a bit of Sufism inside, but not much, just a bit. Wow. And mostly it's a joke about my postgraduate studies at Glasgow University. <laughs> and so does AFG make up most of your home game then? What do you end up playing most of the time these days? At the moment, I'm playtesting... Well, I played AFG for several years, okay. actually. I think I stopped playing AFG because I wrote a new game and I needed to playtest it. <laughs> I wish I had that kind of problem. But <laughs> the magic system in the new game is entirely lifted from AFG. By the way, the FG magic system comes from a really awkward first online conversation with Roger GS of roles, rules, and roles. I think I just contacted him online, and he was like, who's this guy? Yeah, we know what that's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we started like discussing magic systems, and then we kind of like converged our designs. The 52 pages magic system and the FG magic systems are pretty much equivalent. There's been a case of looking in the same places and deciding that, yeah, that, that was probably the best. I always kind of wondered how much AFG was a look at how you ran your own personal game. It's got all these really friendly mechanics for players, like the way when you learn to spell out the skill as it goes, and it's nothing but D6s the whole way through. You've got five more. It seems very, like, very friendly and very fun. Well, five more was, okay, FG was actually written so that I could bring a game to a table full of people that never played role-playing games or that played something else, and they could start running immediately. So I just tell them, roll three stats, and we're done, uh, roll on the random table, we'll just get roll, rolling, and whenever, basically the game mechanic is, if I ask you to, do, to roll a die, you have to roll a five or a six, and modify by the stat, and that's it. 
that's everything literally I love this idea now. and if they play a wizard uh with the side like there is a small discourse between the player and the referee on which spells the player wants and what kind of spellcaster they want to be so for example they want to be a witch or a psionic or a scientist with crazy science and they all fit to the same game mechanics so for example i had this guy that like showed up uh, I was like playing in a in a, in a like a yes, nerd yeah. shop here in Glasgow, and he showed up. It was like I want to play a wizard. Awesome! What kind of spells do you want to do? I want to do light spells. Okay, and so basically, like we put together like a handful of spells that are pretty much like a laser wizard. There was light. There was uh, you know the level one um, prismatic prismatic yeah. spell from. From D&D, the one that like stuns people, that one, and like a handful of other. For a pickup game, it's super mega fun. Hell yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of uh, like letting characters skin themselves. Uh, it's a good hook to get those new players in, is to give them lots of room to like create their own style or like reskin something that already exists. I think it's an OSR thing when the rules are really bare bones, and you're like, well, it says this, but it can be however you want construct their own <laughs> wizardly ways but you're done with that now what are you working on at the moment uh well in addition to like producing games for the lost pages label uh, games that are not written by me i'm uh working on white box 20 which is gurps for the dmd player so knowing knowing nothing about gurps what does that mean okay gurps it's a point buy system and you buy skills it's a skill-based system so you buy skills, you buy stats, there are advantages and disadvantages. And if you buy disadvantages, you get more points to spend on other stuff. So yeah, basically it's a skill-based system. Uh, you get some skills, you roll your stats, and you have a class. Like Classes are optional. There are backgrounds, which are basically starter packs for the character, which are also optional. And levels are optional. So depending on what kind of game the Game Master wants to play, you can put together different kind of things. And at the moment, I'm using that. So uh, you're constructing this around the GURP system. Did I get that correct? No, no, not at all. I made a D20 system that you basically have to roll under okay, cool. your skill mm -hmm. or under your stat. And the higher you roll, the, be the better it is. So roll under by high. And uh, like, actually, it's really friendly. It's pretty much as friendly as AFG, except you have to buy the skills at the beginning cool. of the game. And white box, does that imply that it has no setting? Like, is white box mean it's a blank system? Yeah, no, it, it comes, like, completely bare. I'm using it at the moment for gangs and bullshit. <laughs> okay, I have no idea what you just said, but that sounded excellent. Uh, please explain. Oh, gangs and bullshit is this new game. It's this game I wrote, which, while well, I'm writing, which basically the players are a gang. And different from other games, I was like, you know what would be cool? It would be cool if like there was like this kind of strategic game played like a role-playing game where most of the game is actually the players, so the gang members, discussing around the table oh, what to do. And then resolution is compressed. <laughs> so basically players spend half an hour and they all declare their action for the week or their day, whatever, depending on how long the turn is. Uh, and then you go like, oh, I pickpocket this thing from this guy, and they roll. 
and there's an outcome. Robin and I have been talking about heist games a lot and the uh, long planning phase and collection followed by a very short carrying it out phase. The only thing that like is a long-form resolution is bullshit. So basically, bullshit happens in these games. So when you fail, you can normally shook it off and say, well, I understand that this is too much for me, so I'll just not press it. And you just lose time and opportunity. Oh, so it's like folding in a poker game? Yes, but if you press it, you can fuck up really badly. We're talking about money you've already spent and XP and like stuff like that. Is that the stakes? No, no, no. Stuff like, for example, the heist mechanic. At some point, someone is going to fail a role. So, for example, they fail a sneak. And the player could, could say, like, oh, I'm just running away. Or they could press. And the bullshit, the heat, goes up. <laughs> and depending on how high the heat goes, things go really badly or, or less badly. Nice. I like this. That sounds interesting. So you're using your white box system to run a gangs and bullshit game. Yes, that's correct. It sounds very versatile. I like it. I'm also... The other thing I'm working on at the moment is Mageblade, which is my take on Redbox. Red, Redbox for me has been seminal. It's been like the first game I, I, I run a lot. That's Second Dead? No, it's the... It's the basic D&D that fall yeah oh that's first edition then. no 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 uh it was released in the 80s AD was uh, and it came in a red box and then there was the blue box and the green yeah, box the and the black box, box it's the mentor edition is doing white box too generic and you're like no i need to go back to some proper straight down the line fantasy to cleanse my palate yeah also because like i realize that like if you don't have a game where you roll a d20 and you have armor class people don't seem to buy it <laughs> so i i thought wait i could actually take all the brilliant stuff i've done with these other systems that are just as mentioned to different i feel that like often especially with like a group and an ongoing campaign it's kind of like difficult to bring in new games especially because like you know uh, I'm playing whatever this this game, and like if someone goes like, "Oh, Paul, have you tried like Thirteenth Age and a Red Thirteenth Age?" and like some of the design inside is brilliant, but I'm playing other stuff that and Thirteenth Age is too different. Yeah. Um, so it's like you know I could actually put all the innovation in a game that is essentially as the same as the D and D you're playing. So Labyrinth Lord is pretty much compatible with Mage Blade, also certain wizardry. All Dungeons and Dragons and AD and D uh, are pretty much the same thing. Yeah, I, I was just thinking of James Raggy. He just seems to hate his own core rules, but they're the best-selling thing he's got, and he doesn't know what to do with this thing. He's just like, I just want to publish weird fucking adventures, and people won't let me. Just keep buying the rule book, and I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, James did like a brilliant job with. Uh, Lamentations. It's not a game for me. I like a different kind of grim and grotty. Also, I don't like horror. Yeah, well, his goats are definitely satanic, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can we elaborate on that? What's your thing, man? All goats aside. Uh, no, you mean like systems-wise or setting-wise? Uh, I guess setting-wise. Setting-wise, I've been pretty much running the same... Except for this campaign I'm running now, the Kuzura campaign by Gaborlux, which is awesome. Uh, he made this amazing setting called Fomalhaut, and in Fomalhaut there is this city that is brilliant, and it has a, this fantastic mega dungeon. It's so smartly interconnected. Uh, also, the politics of the city and the mega dungeon are great. 
there are basically no monsters, as in like no prototypical D&D monsters in it, except like a few oozes and a Rust monster, but everything else is pretty much either people or undead. And that's exactly how I run my games. It's mostly, <laughs> in my games, it's almost only uh, people. As in yeah, like you murder a lot of people. Uh, undead, demons, uh, and then, yeah, maybe there are squids from beyond the stars with their power armors and lasers. Maybe there are goats in the forests. That sounds fantastic. So, yeah, basically I've been running the same campaign uh, with different groups for about... Oh, I'm so old. I don't even want to think about it. Uh, and often running different groups at the same time in the same places. <laughs> and that's very interesting because they keep on stumbling into trail of destructions left by other people. And some of these people know each other because they play together. Wow, 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 one second. You've got persistent mess in your dungeon left by previous parties. Yes, I have persistent yeah. mess. Like at some point I had three yeah. groups. Yeah, so it's a persistent world. So if someone goes through and breaks all the traps, the next party will find a bunch of broken traps. Yeah, except they would set, like, destroy cities and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. The, the most glaring thing was that like a group of players, the original Thailian murder hobos, which is my the name I gave to my Italian players. OG, nice. The OGs, yeah. Um, they were doing the adventure in the back of AFG. They were basically given land and a small forty and a small tower by um, the chief of the uplands, and then they went back in their original land, which is called the Western League. They needed to do some business. In the meantime, the group I had here in Glasgow, they were also from the Western League. They decided to, to hire mercenaries and invade the uplands, but not the same the, not the same courts, a completely different like group of courts. Basically, the uplands are splitting courts and they're all kind of like uh, linked to each other in bizarre diplomatic ways. It's complicated. It's pretty much fantasy fucking Switzerland. And they invaded that. So basically, now they were back in the original homeland and they got captured by their baron because they he realized that they were serving their enemies. And since they were nobles at that point, he just couldn't like behead them. It would be stupid and like he had no time for this kind of bullshit. Uh, so he just like put them in jail until the first snow. And the uplands, yeah. where when there are the first snows, gets completely unenterable because the mountain passes are full of snow and you just can't. And so, like, they basically lived in poverty for several months with no assets, no horses, no weapons. They ended up in a grotty attic in a shitty village eating <laughs> gruel. Potage, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Eating gruel and potage. The recipe is mine, by the way. <laughs> potage. Yeah, because uh, you probably listened to that previous episode, but that blew me away. Yeah, and yeah. I want to cook gruel so much. Even if I have to, like, dry and pickle my own wheat in salt, I'm doing that. No, man, like, don't, don't, gruel is terrible. Try potage. Potage is actually okay. really good. It's pretty right, much. Check it out. It's pretty much the medieval equivalent of risotto. I did go to a. Um, a medieval restaurant in Prague and had some pretty, like, awesome, like, it was peasant food, but it tasted way too good and I didn't believe them. So I'm going for a full-on, like, rat suit next, I reckon. 
Delicious. Delicious right. I like how fleshed out your world is that you've got snowed in passes and politics and this whole epic level of uh, your character has tres- transcended the shit farming murder hobo and he's become a lord murder hobo. I don't think I've ever played a game that's reached that level. Is there a hard transition between dealing with goblins and then all of a sudden you're talking to like lords and, and politicians or courtiers? Well, the, the, the game becomes more about different things. Like, it becomes also about different things. Uh, like, the normal operation of, like, low-level D&D is usually, like... Uh, there is, like, the joke, it's about, like, about getting in a hole in the ground, killing the monster and take their gold. Which is not entirely yeah. incorrect. Uh, but at this point, once you have, like... If you find your place in society, you have to deal with it. So, you know, you need to have some skills and you need to make friends and you need to pay your dues and you need to be able to also ask for things and, like, threaten people and set their house on fire and that kind of stuff. Murder hoboing on a, on a grander scale than ever before. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, and of course, like, if you got to murder people, you're going to bring, like, I don't know, 200 swordmen, like 100 archers. True that. Like, why have, like, a, a hireling when you can have, like, a small army of longbowmen? Like, that That sounds good. Just go yeah, back yeah, to that level one dungeon and see if the goblins have respawned and just, like, nuke it with armed men. <laughs> well, well the, 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 I, I don't really like bringing, like, an army in the dungeon because <laughs> it's, it's... Like, to be fair, if I was part of an army, I wouldn't go in the dungeon. It's more suited to commando-style thing. sounds tactically terrible. Yeah. yeah, it would be tactically <laughs> terrible. But on the other hand, imagine if you could have... Um, uh, if your characters could have, like, say, 20 rangers, okay? You have basically a small fort coming with you, like a small garrison coming with you, and you can set camp wherever, and it's going to be yeah, safe. Yeah, that costs money, though. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, well, well, 30 goblins arrive and try to steal my shit. Well, they're going to get their ass kicked. Yeah, but even if nothing happens, you're spending a lot of money, so I guess it all balances out. Yeah. Uh, except like in, during feudalism you wouldn't really pay soldiers oh this was the peasants on the land okay this is something i want to know so i've been primarily reading bergs and bailiffs that's what i'm on uh i think robin's seen a lot more of your stuff than i have what was your role in that because that was a group effort right okay i uh that was a mock cover i did and then i was like this okay. could be a thing this could be a thing so yeah, yeah. I asked and a bunch oh, of people. Oh, and it is. <laughs> I asked a, a bunch of is. people send me sent me articles, and they made it into into Berks and Bailiff, and they wrote for it the one the article about potage and the article about starving cities. Oh, dude, it's so good! Like I am never gonna pass a city again and not burn the granaries, or at least track them just in case. Like it's such so great. And talking about the like. The um, land to peasants to wilderness ratio is also fascinating because yeah, it allows... Yeah, it's, 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 it, of course, like, it's way more complicated than how I put it in the article, but that's like... I know, but... If you want to, like, a minimum you, level like, of detail, I don't even have, that's good enough. Yeah, that's, that's it, exactly. Like, uh, I don't even have a rule of thumb. Yeah, that's what you need to just be able to mock up a functioning medieval region in like you know in a session for a pickup game or whatever and that's really useful and 
just basic stuff that you can really fuck with people like oh you guys want to drink water well all water is poisonous and real people drink alcohol all the time because that's sterile like that's just a state of the land it's one of those situations where reality is worse than fiction and then that's the first volume and then i mean the second volume uh, of, for which i wrote basically nothing but then mike monaco which wrote a bunch of the first volume he wrote a bunch of the second volume as well and then he started to write things and it was like well this is not gonna fit we can keep these okay because like Bergson Bailiff <laughs> volume two, two yep. is called Bergson Bailiff Warfare 2 as in like there is also Warfare and then there is gonna be Warfare Bergson Bailiff 3 which is gonna be called Trinity and then the fourth one if ever we come to make is that the holy one. trinity perhaps yeah it's 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 gonna be about i think a hundred pages book about <laughs> relics pilgrimage and that kind of stuff only you'll be kept in bergs and bailiffs for a while yet <laughs> Can't and, wait. and it's brilliant there is like there are chapters on uh, on uh, the power of relics, and that's not as interesting. There are chapters about stealing relics, which is more interesting. Well, there the, are chapters the economy about the of relics for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not Both sure if there is one about it. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Actually, the whole Furta Sacra. Oh, you know, shards of the cross are everywhere. You can still buy them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of biz. There are at least twenty three fingers of Saint Joseph or something like that. Oh my God! Now I want a twenty three fingered paladin running around somewhere for you to encounter <laughs> just like just farm relics off him maybe he was regenerating them or something <laughs> and this whole thing is um it's going in layout at the moment it's in layout mm. is that is that a part fellow like be honest uh layout is uh some kind of like horrible thing that happens to me but and they power through it and when it's done i feel I feel so good. It's like doing the worst, <laughs> most grueling workout ever. And then you come out of it and are like, wow, that was good. And for today I'm done, but that was good. Beautiful. I've got a bunch of zines. I've printed out your one and a, a couple of others and just trying to get them to print properly. It cost me hours of my life, but it was worth it. Oh, the, the, which zine? Sorry, are oh, there Bergs and Bailiffs, but like dozens of others in a stack somewhere. The greatest sorrow of living in Australia is the separation from the retro RPG zine scene. Yeah, I mean, all, all the all the stuff on the internet is like so easy to get. Like, we can call you up and have this chat, but some zines don't even ship out here, man. It's fucking atrocious. I don't know what to yeah, do. Yeah, shipping it. to Australia from Britain is yeah. even more expensive. Oh yeah, I mean, like you end up paying three times what the person is getting for the zine in the shipping. And I am finding a lot of cool books that are like, yeah, twenty euros and then forty-eight euros shipping, and it's like, ah, oh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, lots of yeah. PDFs on this side of the ocean. Anyway, antipodes problems. <laughs> um, actually, I have another question about localization, Paulo. I lived in Europe for a short time and I used to go to like this metal bar and I wasn't really into D&D at this point, but I was still pretty nerdy and I used to go to this rad metal bar and it was in Austria and people would rock up with their own drinking horns and shit like that. And they were basically LARPing, but they would talk to me completely serious, not about like, not even geeks, just into metal heaps, but they'd go to all these festivals and they'd be like, uh -huh. yeah, we have this, this metal festival 
and it's where Charlemagne fell or some shit. Because, like, history, this history happened in Europe, right? It's right fucking there. But, like, coming from Australia where, like, our cathedrals are from the, like, late 80s and are made out of concrete and brick and wandering around and seeing all these, like, metal guys in particular really brought it home to me because in some ways they were living this medieval fantasy, like, lifestyle Mm -hmm. and just having castles to visit and stuff and going to restaurants that would feed you potage, perhaps. Do you feel like you get any inspiration from your local surroundings or folklore or... um... Well, not as much now here, but yes, uh, a lot. For that perspective, Southern Europe is really weird because... (laughs) The good kind? I I literally had a shot. Like, I I was going around Milan and they had a shot where... On the right, there was like a 13th century monastery. And then there were some 17th century mansions and some 18th century houses and some early 19th century, sorry, 20th century modernist houses. And at the end, there was this gigantic spire of metal and glass. It's like the tallest building in Italy. It's like a spirally gigantic spire. And it, and it was all in the same pic- frame in the picture. Like, I took a photograph with all this stuff inside. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's awesome. And, like, for example, like, my grandfather was born in a Longobard tower. That's where his family was living. They built a farm around the tower. Can you just clarify, the tower is an actual tower. That's not the name of the tower. No, 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 no. It's a tower built by Longobards. Basically, the Longobards were kind of like came from like probably southern Sweden and settled in Italy in the early Middle Ages, which were this kind of like, you know, like you speak about the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans, and there were the Longbards as well. There is also one in my hometown, the town hall, like one of the corners on the church square is a Longobard tower from probably the 9th century. Some of the things that are in Adventure Fantasy game are totally stolen from that, and... Um, for example, whenever I put, uh, there are like different kind of farm land organization, depending on how safe the land is. One of them is having basically a farm with several farm buildings made of stone all built around the courtyard mm-hmm. yep, with yep, only yep. one or two entrances. You can gate them off and you're fine. And nobody can come in. And those, there are plenty of those in my region. My mother and my grandfather were born in one. It's kind of like a ring. Uh, well, they're, they're literally called Lom- Lombard uh, courts. Uh, they're just like farms built around the court. And those are in my games. And, you know, they're great because they're basically some kind of like farms with inside you have nice porticos where you can either have communal life or, you know, set hay to dry, that kind of stuff. Or sit in the shade or have food, keep the animals. But they're also become like sturdy, cheap, semi-fortified buildings. Yeah, yeah, so basically the reason why I have games like where you mentioned like with like crazy political plots and like, kind of stuff like that is because I can't write adventures. Yeah. When I, whenever I sit down to write an adventure, I have like a completely, 
I can, I can write if I force myself to, but like they're not good words, and they're they feel like totally like a cheat. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, there are like thirty-two goblins in this place, and there is a goblin priest, blah blah blah. And then I put in like you know uh, crazy rituals and like custom magic for the thing, and like two or three mutant NPC uh, goblins. And it's all colorful, but I feel like a cheat because, like, I don't feel like it's it doesn't it doesn't really grab me as a writer. It's something I can write kind of procedurally because I know what's in, so I just need to fill in the blanks. Yeah, but for like the rest of us, finding those that structure is pretty cool. Like, I found it very helpful. <laughs> all this historical background to throw these weird curveballs, reality curveballs at fantasy players about the harsh realities of living in a medieval society. It's very interesting. <laughs> so yeah, since I can't really write the end of adventures, I write these kind of like crazy societal traps where there is all this like <laughs> tension of people that kind of want to steal each other's land and power and money and... Because and, and I mean, Italy dope. was definitely a, a hotspot for that kind of thing as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Medici's yeah. came out of there, like uh, Venice area, I, th I think, yeah. Yeah, the, the, like they, the, that was the, the a whole... seat of power for a long time. After the Holy Roman Empire was fought off, things became crazy. I always have this crazy want of writing a game about Renaissance Italy. Is that your grail? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should. That's that should be the thing. Hey, Paulo, thank you so much for coming to talk to us tonight. Cheers! It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Will you, will you come back and and have a chat with us again? No, whenever you whenever you want to have me, people. I'm happy to blabber whenever you want. Shit, yeah. Thanks so much, Paulo. <laughs> we we can take it. <laughs> Thanks, guys.